0: Well, good morning. I walked in and saw all these chairs and wondered if I was in the right room. I saw Clyde, and I knew I was. All right, so I'm double-checking that the Zoomers can hear us. John Alexander, give us the thumbs up. There's the thumb, so we're all right. I'll scoot this over just a little bit. And in my flailing of my arms, eventually I'll probably knock this thing off. So I'm sorry if that happens. Well, I like to read books, and if you like to read books, you probably occasionally get recommendations. Uh, I was sent a recommendation of the world's 20th shortest books, and I thought, well, that's a list I'd like to see because, you know, if, if an author can really, you know, summarize quickly, uh, that'll get you through it pretty fast. So I won't read all 20, but I'll read a few that I think are of particular interest. The World. World's 20th shortest books. Number 10 is America's Most Popular Lawyers. <laughs> number 9, Career Opportunities for Liberal Arts Majors. <laughs> oh, Music majors ought to be there as well. Uh, number 7, I like this one, Al Gore, The Wild Years. <laughs> That's a really short book. Uh, number 5, I'm surprised this even got published, but it's Everything Men Understand About Women. I'm going to check that one out. And uh, number one, there's a couple of others, but number one is uh, The Engineer's Guide to Fashion. (laughs) Any engineers in the room? Stand up and have you model your outfit for us. Well, honestly, a book doesn't have to be long to be effective, it uh, just needs to be effective. And who knows, there may be a lot of wisdom packed in the Engineer's Guide to Fashion, who knows? (laughs) I remember reading about Lincoln when he gave his Gettysburg Address, the politician whom most of us are aware of beforehand, um, and one of you can probably holler out his name, I can't remember who it was, that spoke right before Lincoln, spoke for like two hours. Douglas. Douglas. And uh, then, of course, Lincoln gets up and gives his Gettysburg Address in like two minutes. And Douglas says, you said more in two minutes than I said in two hours. It doesn't have to be long to be effective. And when I think about a short bit of content that is powerful, I think about 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look there together as we continue in our series that focuses on just a single message from each book of the Bible. We have come all the way from Genesis to 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth, they had a lot of problems. There's, there's two whole de, uh, books devoted to this church, 1 and 2 Corinthians. There's another letter that was, it's called Lost, but of course, Scripture's never lost, so it probably was not inspired. But uh, nevertheless, uh, there is a, a, another letter mentioned that they received. And of course, there is uh, Paul's presence. Paul lived there for a year and a half on his second missionary journey. And there's a lot we could talk about with regard to Corinth. I mean, they had problems. You could call this church God's problem children, they were struggling. And in a sense, you can't blame them because they lived at Corinth. Corinth was a hard place to live as a Christian, um, and there's a lot we could talk about with regard to Corinth and the church there. They struggled with unity. They had factions. You know, we like this preacher over this preacher, and we're gonna we're gonna follow this guy, and I follow this guy. Um, they struggled with. Um, with unity, they struggled with arrogance with regard to knowledge and wisdom. Um, they struggled obviously with sexuality. Corinth was a notorious for its immorality. But they also struggled at the very basic level with what we struggle with, and that is why they did what they did. What was their motive? So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, he focuses on wh- what you might call the, the why, and not so much the what. And all we have to do is read Paul's letters to the to Corinthians to see what kind of cultural and moral struggles that they had. Uh, one of the things that I found so fascinating when I went to Corinth, and you can't really um, picture it. I mean, I guess you can if you see a picture, but you don't really get the sense of it till you're there is of course the the city of Corinth is on this flat level down by uh, by the by the water or not too far from the water and then there's this mountain literally this mountain or this uh, Acrocorinth is what it's called right beside it that just looms over it and at the top of the Acrocorinth was a temple to Aphrodite in which one of the historians estimated they had 1000 temple prostitutes on top of that mountain that basically serviced those who came to worship aphrodite and so you kind of had this constant presence of temptation in a culture that basically said you know go for it and to have this mountain constantly over you it reminded me so much of our culture because our culture is that way we have a constant sense of temptation not just in the immorality sense, though that's obviously part of our culture, but in every way that's godless. You, don't have, you can walk anywhere in the city, and that mountain overshadows you. You can turn and look, and it's, it's, it's easy. It's right there. This was the challenge, one of the challenges that they faced in Corinth. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, unfortunately this is only often read at weddings, Uh, But the basis of love is so much more basic than uh, marriage, though it certainly should be there. 1 Corinthians 13, let's start right in verse 1, and we're going to work our way through this chapter. There's only 13 verses, but as with the shortest books in the world, and with the Gettysburg Address, and with other very important bits of content, this is inspired by God, and its brevity is powerful. Paul writes, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. When Paul describes love here in this chapter, he says uh, love here in verse 1, he uses a word that the secular writers, the secular Greek writers didn't use a lot. There are a number of words for love. When we say love, we use the same word when we say, you know, I love my wife, and then I could say I love pizza. Not the same thing, but it's exactly the same word, but I mean two different things. Well, the Greeks actually had different words for different types of love, and this love, it was the word agape. We've all heard agape, but that's because we're in churches that preach the Bible and, and uh, preachers that talk about agape love. Interestingly, the the loves that they were more familiar with were not that familiar with, all the other Greek words for love. But anyway, we won't get into that because that's not 1 Corinthians 13. But 1 Corinthians 13, agape, was a word that wasn't that familiar in Paul's day because it wasn't used in secular literature. And the Lord God inspired, the Spirit of God inspired um, the biblical writers to use the agape love in, in its meaning and just to allow, allow it to flower and blossom with the beauty of, of application to God and application of God's character to us. So the word here for love, agape. The King James, if you have the King James Version, it's translated as charity, which is sort of an unfortunate translation because we t- tend to think of charity as like, you know, philanthropy. And philanthropy is not patient. Philanthropy is not kind. It's sort of a a, a bad, well, it's just a bad translation, unless you understand charity as meaning love in the sense of self-sacrifice. To speak with the tongues of men here in verse 1, the tongues of men and of angels, is really a way of saying to speak with the languages. It would be a better translation to say if I spoke in the languages of men, and then he goes beyond that to say of angels. He is using a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration for the point of emphasis. And we use hyperboles all the time, don't we? See, I just used one all the time. We don't use them all the time, but we use them often, so often that we just take it for granted. Paul is using a hyperbole, and he says, If I could speak with the tongues of men, in other words, if I spoke every language, in fact, if I could even speak the language of angels, but I don't have love, all of those words are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. They are worthless. And he says the same thing now in a different way, and he kind of takes it up to the next level. Verse 2, he says... If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Notice how he uses the word all. Look, look again at verse 2. He uses the word all. All uh, faith, all knowledge, all mysteries. And then he says, Uh, I am nothing if I don't have love. So again, he exaggerates. He takes it to the extreme. All of these things. And uh, the exaggeration is to make the emphasis that the point is it's all worthless. I can have all knowledge, all wisdom, all faith, but it's all worthless apart from love. Not only that, there's another extreme. Look at verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor... And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So the the, the one constant in all these various gifts and abilities is the phrase, but do not have love. Paul isn't saying that these activities are not valuable, that there isn't value in them. In fact, he mentions them because there is value in them. But what he means is that giving possessions... To the poor, does benefit the poor, but the point is, what's at stake is not the activity without love, but rather the person who is doing the activity who does it from a motive that's not loving. In God's sight, without the motivation of love, the activity doesn't benefit we who do the activity. I read about a mother who found a piece of paper under uh, her breakfast plate, it was a bill from her son. It said, uh, it, from her 8-year-old son, Bradley. And it, and it read, I'll read it to you, it says, Mother o- owes Bradley for running errands, 25 cents, for being good, 10 cents, for taking music lessons, 15 cents, for extras, 5 cents, total, 55 cents. And then at lunch, Bradley finds a piece of paper under his plate, And with it, 55 cents, and the piece of paper was a bill, and it said, Bradley owes mother, for nursing him through scarlet fever, nothing. For being good to him, nothing. For clothes, shoes, playthings, nothing. For his meals, including this one, nothing. Total nothing. Isn't that great? What a great thinking mom. I probably would have slapped like, you know, $500 or $800, total $1 million. Take that, Bradley. (laughs) No, but this mother understood why she did it. Love. We love, the scripture tells us, because God first loved us. In fact, how did God love us? He gave his only son for us. He gave all for us the love of God cost us nothing I think about that with regard to Bradley's bill you know if we if we started trying to tally up all that God's done for us and what we owed him and yet he tells us we owe him nothing because Christ paid it all when he died on the cross he died in our place Max Lucado wrote this prayer. I love the way he puts it. He said, God, I have a question. Why do you love your children? I don't want to sound irreverent, but only heaven knows how much pain we've brought you. Why do you tolerate us? You give us every breath we breathe, but do we thank you? You give us bodies beyond duplication, but do we praise you? Seldom. You fill the world with food, but we blame you for hunger. You keep the earth from tilting and the arctics from thawing, but we accuse you of unconcern. We give more applause to a brawny ball carrier than we do to the God who made us. You have every reason to abandon us, yet, Father, your love never ceases. Our evil cannot diminish your love. Our goodness cannot increase it. Our faith does not earn it any more than our stupidity jeopardizes it. You don't love us less if we fail. You don't love us more if we succeed. Your love never ceases. You know, at Easter, we are familiar with Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, Good Friday, and then there's Monday Thursday. It's like, what does that mean? It's not Monday Thursday. It's Maundy. Maundy is from a, a Latin word that refers to the great Mandate. What was the great mandate given on Thursday? It was love. Love one another. The great mandate that was given on Monday, Thursday in the upper room by Christ was to love one another. This is the great mandate, to love one another. And Paul here elaborates on what that looks like. And he's first of all told us here in verses 1 through 3 what you might call the priority of love. I mean, without it, nothing else matters. But then he says now, kind of gives us a portrait of what love looks like. And here's where it gets real practical. So, Lord, this would be a great time for the rapture if you uh, don't want us to be terribly convicted. Okay, here we go. Look at verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. I've heard one time... uh, A great way to apply this, or at least to attempt to apply it, is to replace your name with the word love in here. Wayne is patient. Wayne is kind. Wayne is not jealous. That just sounds wrong to say, doesn't it? How does it sound when your name gets put in there? Probably sounds about the same, doesn't it? Well, it's interesting to note that after verse 3... From verse 4 on, there's not a single adjective in the Greek language. Now, here in English, they're all adjectives patient, kind, jealous. But in the original language, Paul didn't write it with adjectives. He wrote it with verbs or with uh, you might, what you might call participles, like gerunds that sort of act like nouns. But in other words, we've got Paul wrote it not love as patient, but rather love as being patient. Love is being kind. This is how he wrote it in the original. In other words, love is a verb. Love is something that we do. It's not just something we describe or something that uh, describes us, but it's an action. There There is something that you can point to when you talk about love. Love is being patient. That's a good place to start. The word is basically a long holding of the mind before it gives room or action to passion it takes a long time before fuming sometimes we we refer to patience as long suffering it's a great synonym isn't it long suffering it's suffering suffering long is being patient We're also told that love is not provoked, or if you have the new international version, it reads, not easily angered. In other words, you are in control. No one else angers you. No one else decides for you that you're going to be angry. You decide that. You are in control. And both of these words are written in such a way as to emphasize the continual habitual action. Love is being patient. Love is continually being patient. It's not a one-time act. It's a decision that we make, and we keep on making it every day. You know why we struggle with patience? Because of what we read read there in verse 5, where it says that it does not seek its own. Because we do seek our own, don't we? And so we are impatient. I read a I read an article about a study in the University of Wash at the University of Washington that concluded that for a happy marriage to work, the husband should simply do whatever his wife wants him to do. And all the wives said, "Amen." No. Well, doesn't work though. It, it uh, it's a nice idea maybe for uh, about half an afternoon. But it just doesn't work and it's not it's not biblical love doesn't mean that you um, that you're a doormat love doesn't mean that you just do whatever someone else wants to refuse to be selfish is not consenting to just give in to what anybody else wants it simply means that you don't think um, it realizes that you're not doing something just for your own good but for the good of others as well in contrast to selfishness, we read there in verse 4 that love is kind. It's a, it's a word that means to be useful, gracious, gentle, and to do good to others. I heard about a man, an, an elderly man that was riding on a train and accidentally broke a rule. It was a small rule, no big deal, but this young train employee just let this, let this old man have it. And the old man just stood there and listened. And after the train employee left, someone come, came over to this elderly man and said, "You, you should have just let that guy have it. Why did you just stand there and take it?" And the old man said, "Well, if a guy like that can stand himself for all his life, I can surely stand him for five minutes." <laughs> you see, being kind is considering the big picture. It means that we're looking out for just beyond ourselves. Hmm. Since God is love, it's not a big surprise that He is patient, that He is kind, that He does not seek His own, that He is not provoked. He is amazingly patient, isn't He? We're told in the Psalms and in Peter's epistles that God is so patient that with Him a day is like a thousand years doesn't mean it is a thousand years but it's like a thousand years. He has the patience in a thousand years that we have in a day. He is he is that patient. Also we're told in verse 5 that love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. And again, this is written in such a way that it's continual action. The New International version, I think it reads love keeps no record of wrongs. It means to store something up uh, I don't know about you, but I've been thinking a lot about gallbladders lately. <laughs> and um, I actually took my first run this week without my gallbladder, and it, was, uh, and it worked. It worked just fine. I was kind of concerned, but it, it worked just fine. But I've, I've learned a lot also about gallbladders. So it's like I mean, I remember asking my doctor, I said, "If you want to take it out, why did God put it there?" I literally asked him that. And then he told me, you know, how, how the gallbladder works. And I never really realized that before it's just a little bag that stores, stores stuff that you, when you need it. It doesn't produce anything, it's just a little holding tank. And when you need a little bit of bile because you've eaten too much grease, the gallbladder squirts it out into your system. And voila, it helps take care of the fat. Isn't that nice? So, what happens if you, you know, if you eat fat and you don't have your gallbladder to squirt stuff out? Well, it still gets squirted, but it just comes straight from the liver. There's no storing it. So it's kind of a print-on-demand type thing. You know, we store stuff too, don't we, when we need it. If somebody offends us, we've got a gallbladder. We can stick that in, don't we? (laughs) And we can squirt that thing right back out as soon as we need it. Well, when Christ died on the cross, he removed your gallbladder. <laughs> he did. Or at least he should should have. We don't store it. We don't store it. <laughs> so I guess you could take the metaphor and say, yeah, we print it on demand. I mean, it's, it's always ready. No, 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 no. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It stores up no resentment. That doesn't mean that if a dog bites me, I'm going to be dumb enough to pet that dog again. It just means I forgive the dog and move on. I don't hold a grudge. Trust that's broken has to be earned, but forgiveness should be given regardless. Big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation in relationships. Reconciliation is a two-way street. That may never happen. Hope it does. But forgiveness is a one-way street that we choose to do on our own. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. And in this portrait of love, this last part of it here, this is probably the most important because it shows that love doesn't quit. Starting in verse 7, we see what we might call the permanence of love. Verse 7 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When uh, my older daughter, our older daughter Sarah, was a little girl, she used to often say, Daddy, how much do you love me? What a great question. And I would tell her what uh, I—a phrase that I made up as a little boy. I would tell my grandmother, I would say, Mimi, I love you more than the end of counting. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) Of course, there is no end of counting. The end of counting. The end of counting. I love you more than the end of counting. And there is no end of counting. So my love has no end. So that's what I tell Sarah. I love you more than the end of counting. And then I asked her, how, how much do you love me? And she said, as many things as you see. Yeah. What are we saying? We're saying there's no limits. There's no limit to our love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures. Love never fails. To believe all things is to always trust. And again, looking at the New International Version, I think it translates it that way, that love always trusts. It doesn't mean that you're naive, that you just believe everything that everybody says, but it has the idea that love never ceases to believe or it, it doesn't cease to have faith or to trust in spite of all things. There's nothing that can happen that causes you to fail to believe, or to have faith in God. And there will be plenty that will try in this world. Again, remember where these Christians were living. They were living in Corinth. Remember where you were living. You were living in America. You are living in a culture that will nod to God, but defines God in a way that's totally outside of the Scriptures. There will be plenty that will encourage you to lose faith in what's right. Just look at the world around us. Just look at the sin within us. It wants to tempt us to doubt, but love doesn't do that. Love never fails. Love continues to believe in spite of all things out there and in spite of all things in here, we don't give up. We don't ever give up because we don't need to. What's the difference between bears all things and endures all things? There are in verses 7 and 8. To bear all things comes from a word that means to cover. It's the idea of protecting, like a roof, or to bear something up, like support. It's, it's a willingness to sacrifice. It's a willingness to suffer, if that's what it takes, to do what's right. Um, and then... To endure all things is basically a willingness to just continue to do it, to continue sacrificing, to continue suffering in spite of the difficulty. I read someplace that triumph is just oomph, add to try. Isn't that good? (laughs) Triumph is just oomph, add to try. You just keep on doing it. Love perseveres. This is the idea when Jesus says you take up your cross daily. Every day, we don't leave it in the closet when we leave the house. we take it with us. We take our cross up every day. And then he gives this illustration of, of that's always seemed like an oddball thing. You don't read this part at weddings, and yet here it is. What is this about, you know, tongues ceasing and prophecy done away and all that jazz? And how in the world does that fit with a chapter on love? Well, Paul writes this section here and he he just he says uh, if there are gifts of prophecy they'll be done away if there are tongues they will cease if there's knowledge it will be done away. What's he talking about? Well, remember, this is a context. The the Corinthians struggled with this. In fact, if we were to look at uh, we won't look at it, but if we were to look at the very next chapter, there's a whole chapter here on uh, the idea of tongues or really languages, and that is the context of this gift we saw it in verse 1 the 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 languages of men the tongues of men and of angels if you were to look in acts chapter 2 where this gift initially shows up it's clearly languages there this is not a static speech or some um, unintelligible gibberish it's a language that Outside the church is used for evangelism, and inside the church it's used for edification, always with an interpreter, or at least in the, here in the first century. But Paul writes something here, and the original language gives us some interesting insight into it. He, um, he writes that, um, first of all, that he says tongues will cease, and the way he wrote it in the original language indicates that it's to stop by itself. In our language we have a um, active and passive sense. You know, an active is something I do, passive is something that's done to me. And these are the only two voices that we have in our language. Well, there is another one in Greek that's called middle, and that is something that acts upon itself. It's active is we do it, passive it's done to me, but middle is something that's done by itself or to itself. And that is what is used here with tongues. Very interesting that tongues all by itself is going to be done away or that it will cease and um, it stops by itself. The other two mentioned prophecy and knowledge we're told will be done away. In other words, it's done to it, meaning they're stopped by something else. And in particular, we're told they'll be done away when the perfect comes. What's the perfect? It just gets naughtier and naughtier. Well, naughtier. That's K-N-O-T. I thought I better explain my little homonym there. Um, It gets more thorny. How's that? That's a better metaphor. But what's the perfect? The perfect can also be translated mature or complete. In other words, when the mature or when the complete comes, then these other things won't be needed anymore. In fact, this is often, most often the way that Paul uses this uh, this phrase. And he gives us an illustration to help us understand what he means by all this doing away business. Look at verse 11. He gives an illustration. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now that is an illustration we can connect with, isn't it? Think about it. When you were a kid, you did Childish things. You spoke like a child. You thought like a child. You reason like a child. We, In fact, we, we laugh at the reasoning of children today, don't we? It's funny. So much of the time it's funny because they're just honest. But um, their reasoning, though, think about it. It's immature. It's not developed. But as they grow up, it becomes developed, and they leave behind the childish things. This is an illustration we clearly understand. But part of what Paul is saying is, it didn't happen overnight. It happened in a process. It was a slow growth. It was a slow process to maturity, and he uses that as an illustration for these gifts that we're told that will cease. Um, so I take it as do many other teachers and students of Scripture that these gifts and only these that are mentioned are those that are revelation gifts. Uh, sign gifts, you might say, are those that are no longer needed in the church today because we've got the complete revelation of God. But the point is um, of mentioning the temporary nature of these gifts is a contrast to love, which is not temporary. That's the whole point. The point is where, whenever these things cease, they do cease. He says love doesn't. And too often we give emphasis and acclaim and applause to gifts and not to love. Just think about that. How often we applaud one who is gifted with zero concern about their character. And yet when we find out about their character, all of a sudden their gift doesn't matter at all. Or their gift is heightened even more. Think about that, because it is so true. Paul is saying, gifts are great, but realize they're temporary. If you want to emphasize something, emphasize character, emphasize love. If you want to develop something in your life, spend just as much or more time developing your your love as your gifts and abilities. Gifts and abilities, everybody applauds, but without love, it's nothing. I am nothing. Profits me nothing. It's worthless. It's a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Can you think about somebody in your life that you know that is very gifted, and yet when you realize that they didn't have a godly character, that their gifts didn't matter? On the other hand, you can think about someone who is very modestly gifted, but who has great character, and all of a sudden their gifts are just magnified in your heart. Paul is saying this is how we need to be in our lives. The evidence of our spirituality is to be our love, which never ceases. That's the point. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes, endures. It never fails. This is why Jesus said the greatest commandment is love, because it summarizes the whole Old Testament. That's an amazing summary. Well, look at the final two verses here in this chapter, Paul writes, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Back in, that, in those days, they didn't have the mirrors that we had. They had uh, water to look in, and they had uh, polished metal. You could polish metal pretty nicely and get a, get a reflection, but it wasn't a great reflection. But today, you know, we, we see face to face. You look in the mirror, and you see the real thing, don't you? Kind of be nice to go back to those polished mirrors, wouldn't it? I, I want to go with the illusion. I don't want to see the real thing. Paul is saying, right now, our understanding, our reasoning, is we see in a mirror. When we think about the things of God, we see it, but it's, it's not clear. But one day, we're told, then we will see face to face, we will know fully, just as also we have been fully known. That is an amazing thought. Think about how well God knows you. One day, those tables will turn, and you will have that same knowledge about God. Wow. And the greatest of these is love. He ends this chapter. The Corinthians were a lot like us. They were confused about life. They struggled with factions, with, with uh, divisions, with following Apollos, Peter, Paul, Jesus was in, even in there, which is kind of neat. They struggled with gifts. My gift is better than your gift. They struggled with power. They struggled with wisdom as opposed to um, the true knowledge of God. They struggled with wanting this particular gift to be elevated. I mean, this was a church that, that struggled not only inside the church but outside the church, as we've mentioned, with their immorality And that mountain that always loomed over them, this constant sense of temptation. In chapter 13, Paul is basically bringing them back to why they do what they do. So, I'm going to just challenge you and challenge myself. Nobody can read this chapter and come out unscathed. Because only Christ is the only human that's ever lived this perfectly. We all have failed, 1 Corinthians 13, and we do on a regular basis. So, but this isn't here to shame us. It's here to inspire us. It's here to show us the goal. God, if God is love, God is these things. Christ is these things. And he is our motivation. He is our model. He is the one that we try to become just like. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us some wonderful insight and to how to be loving just like God was, God is. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're grateful to you for giving us this chapter, and really all of 1 Corinthians is such an encouragement because the context of this city, this church, these Christians and saints who were living in this land struggled with their culture much like we struggle against ours. It was a culture that was sensual. It was a culture that was divisive, a culture that had very little thought of the things of God. And yet, because of your grace invading uh, and inviting these people to come to know Jesus, many of them did and struggled to leave the old life behind how similar we are to them. We live by faith, and yet this world, we see so many things. Father, as we've read this chapter, your spirit has no doubt tapped our shoulder on more than one verse, whether it's kindness, whether it's patience, whether it's unforgiveness, whether it's keeping a record of wrongs, whatever it is. We all have been affected to some extent. Lord, would you take us to the very basic motive of why we do what we do and just remind us that just as Jesus loved us, so we can love others. Just as the Lord forgave us and was kind to us and is patient with us, so we can extend the same to others. Not because... uh, they've earned it but because lord you've commanded it and you've given it to us and so our act of love to others is an act of worship that we give to you thank you for paul's words that we get to read and to now the privilege of applying strengthen us to do so we pray in jesus name amen